We are uh, a little over halfway, a few weeks to go in our series on faith and finances, and we're learning how to access God's wisdom and power, God's grace, his guidance, and his provision. And we want to grow as a church and as individuals, as households, so that we can become people who more consistently avoid debt, give generously, save prudently, and spend strategically. That's kind of the big picture goal. And today I want to talk about generous giving. Uh, as you study the Bible, you discover lots of material on giving, lots of material and, and references to generosity and calls to generosity. And that's because giving and generosity are so connected to what it means as humans to image God. And I think Rick, in his part A and B message, uh, B last week, did a really good job of explaining that, that giving and generosity, in a lot of ways, is a natural result of imaging God faithfully, which comes from understanding God and experiencing God as a generous creator and as a redeemer. And that's why Psalm 37 says, the righteous give generously. When we're in right relationship with God, giving kind of erupts from our lives. When we're understanding and experiencing God, and it's in alignment with who God reveals himself to be. We don't have to be pushed and cajoled into generosity. It happens naturally. Now today I'm going to move beyond last week's message, which was a really powerful um, one that helped us to think about how the spirit and posture of generosity really should form and shape all the avenues and dimensions of our lives, generosity and time and energy, talents, money, resources, Right? Remember that uh, framing metaphor at the end of you know, God's generosity and grace is like a river and we're distributaries that take that out in all of different kinds of ways. And there's just this flow of God's generosity into our lives and through our lives, from our lives. And I want to build on that and hone things down. And I want to speak to giving and generosity today, specifically as it relates to materially supporting the mission and ministry of God's church. So I want to talk about four broad principles of giving that I, th I think it's fair to say basically every Christian tradition, regardless of denomination, that we're, we're all going to agree on these things. So these are pretty solidly found in the uh, principles and particularities of Old Testament through New Testament. And there are four broad principles that should inform our giving. Number one, giving is to be a priority. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. The concept of first fruits comes from a recognition that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And because God owns everything, really, we're in returning a portion of what we have to God. We're acknowledging his lordship over everything in the world, but also that he has blessed us with. And the Bible instructed uh, people in the Old Testament to bring the best and the first of their animal sacrifices and the first fruits of the land, those first crops, which was a huge act of faith because if you give the first uh, fruits of the whole crop season and then the rest of the crop season doesn't come through, there might be a temptation to be like, well, I want to store up the first fruits. But God says, no, I want you to give the first fruits to me. I own that land. I've given you prosperity. This is an exercise of trust. And so whether the crop was olive oil or wine or honey or sheep's wool or fruit, 
there was always an offering to give God your first and to give God your best. Do you guys remember uh, bed mass, order of operations? I do because I've been leading my son and daughter through it this year. <laughs> right? You got this equation, all these different combinations of uh, brackets and pluses and minuses and multiplication and division. And what you learn is that there actually has to be a particular order that you do the operations in. Otherwise, you get the wrong answer. And in our lives and in our finances, there is kind of a divine order of operations. That if you get out of that order, you won't arrive at the right answer. There's an order of priority. And that begins by giving God our first and our best. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first this. And then he goes on to promise all the other things will be taken care of. But you've got to center on this and make that your pursuit. God's a priority. He gets the best of our time and our resources and our energy. And then when Paul is instructing early Christians along these same lines, the Apostle Paul, he says, On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And he goes on to give further instruction. But when does he say to do it? On the first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday, today. You are giving God right now the first fruits of your time this week. That's awesome. You are saying, the first thing I want to do to start my week is to gather with other Christians and praise God. That's going to set me. That's awesome. And the Apostle Paul says that's what you should do when it comes to your giving as well. You prioritize that. You give God your first and you give God your best. And that's why when I talk, even generally about what we can do with our money, I always intentionally use the order of give, save, spend. Because our culture will reinforce spend, then if you've got some leftover, save, and then if you're feeling extra generous, give. But the kingdom is reversed. It's you give, then you save, and with save, to tie it into a few weeks ago, eat into your debt there, and then you spend. So giving should be a priority. Number two, giving should be proportional. Paul in that same passage says, on the first day of the week, you set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And the Greek there is uh, really trying to get at this idea, uh, set aside an amount in proportion to your income. So he's not giving them a set amount. He's saying it's going to be flexible depending on the extent to which God has materially blessed you, in that case, in the previous week or a few weeks. That's why churches usually talk about giving with percentages and not a fixed amount. Because giving was always instructed within the church to be proportional. And that's God's way of um, justice and mercy and righteousness applied to the support and faithfulness of his people and his church, right? Giving $500 to the church might be inconsequentially insignificant to someone. They can do it without batting an eye. But to someone else, that is crushing. That would actually maybe impoverish them or put them in a really dangerous place financially. So God says, you, you set aside, you make, give God your first and your best, but you give a portion that's proportional to how God has, has advanced you and blessed you materially. And like Rick said, it doesn't matter the, the amount that you get. It's not about comparing 
It's about saying, this is what God has given me, and now I'm going to return to God a portion of that. Our giving should be, number three, sacrificial. And this is the one that Christians can say, can roll off the tongue really easily. We can get a lot of like, mm, yeah, sacrificial. But what that means is your giving will hurt to some extent. It will be, I would argue, even more than uncomfortable. It will be painful. The Bible says that giving to God is always good, but giving to God will not always feel good. It will not come with an immediate return on emotional investment. We are like, oh, amazing. And that's because it is a sacrifice. And every sacrifice means the death of something. And Romans 12 says our whole lives are to be a sacrifice before God. And so that should help us to realize, okay, the Christian life is not always going to feel amazing and easy and comfortable. But what it's also going to mean is that my giving is going to be painful because I'm putting to death something that I, the idea or the opportunity to do something over here in order to advance God's kingdom over here. And maybe in a way that will never come back and bless me. In 2 Samuel 24, David is offered by this person a bunch of oxen as a gift to the king. And the person essentially says, David, I want to bless you with these resources and you can offer this grand sacrifice to God. That's my gift to you. And David says, no, I won't receive that gift. I'm going to pay for every single one of those oxen. And he goes on to say, I will not offer God a sacrifice for that which costs me nothing. Giving is meant to be a sacrifice. And David says, if I sacrifice something to God in worship that someone else gave, there, I've, I haven't lost anything. And there should be a loss. There should be a sense of like, oof, that cost me something. Because that's one of the ways I signal to the God and remind myself that life is about him and sacrificing for his glory and not mine. His advancement, not mine. And then when Jesus in the New Testament, there's that story of the, the, the widow's might and she puts in their, their uh, he and his disciples are at the temple and their people are putting in different amounts of money and the Pharisees and the religious kind of leaders are putting in like large sums of money. They're very wealthy. And this poor widow comes and she puts two very small copper coins in. They're only worth a few cents. And Jesus pounces on that opportunity. He calls his disciples over. He makes note of what's happened. And he says, I tell you, this poor widow actually put in more than all the other people who came before her. Which, I mean, is mathematically not true. So what's going on, right? He says, they all gave out of their wealth. So they gave a lot, but it was out of proportion, and it was easy for them. It wasn't even sacrificial. But she, out of her poverty, poverty, gave everything. And then he says she actually gave everything she had to live on, like for that week or, you know, short horizon line. And Jesus says, see, God is not pleased by the amount that we give. It's the proportion of the sacrifice. If I gave tens of thousands of dollars or whatever amount in your mind that would say, wow, that's amazingly generous, you actually wouldn't be able to infer that based on the amount because you don't know whether or not it costs me anything. 
or whether that was easy for me to do. God is not pleased by the amount that we give, but by the sacrifice that it represents. He, uh, C.S. Lewis was once asked to make a comment on how much should Christians give to the church, like practically, when it comes down to brass tacks, like what do, we, what do you suggest? And he doesn't land on something specific, but he anchors his answer into this idea that your giving as a Christian should be sacrificial because everything that God does and is, is generous and is self-sacrificial. And we see that ultimately in Jesus. So if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm not making sacrifices in any significant way, there's a real misalignment there. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, then I should say that they're too small. There ought to be things we want to do but can't do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Which is a really poetic way of saying, if our giving doesn't in some way inhibit the lifestyle that we think we're entitled to or that we think we want, then it's not enough. It's not actually sacrificial. And lastly, giving is to be done cheerfully. When Paul is teaching Christians the posture of their heart, the trajectory of their giving from the heart outwards, he says, I want you, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, I want you to give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. He says, I don't want you to give reluctantly, which means regretfully or the sense of grief or I'm giving in a way that I'm just kind of resentful towards God or the church or I'll give it. I know it's the right thing to do. I'm going to stew on it all week or all month or all year. He says, I don't want you to give in response to pressure. No coercion, no manipulation. Don't give because someone's badgering you to give. Because God loves a Hilaron, which comes from the Greek word hilaros, which is the Greek word from which we get hilarious. God wants you to be a hilarious giver. He wants you to be free. He wants your giving to come from a place where you're like, oh, like, kind of like going to the gym. I know this is going to hurt, but I'm, I'm ready. This is going to be good. I'm going to grow because of this. I'm excited, right? It's not drudgery. It's not like, it's not like this is my tax for being a Christian. It's actually like, this is exciting. It's faith stretching, it's challenging, but it's exciting. And I'm eager to give. Now, you don't have to tell me, I know many churches and pastors apply all kinds of pressure and tactics to get people to give. They can guilt, they can shame, they can make demands, they can be passive aggressive. That is no place in the church at all, full stop. Uh, one of the things that I hope has been and will continue to be a legacy of my ministry in this area is that uh, I will teach on giving without applying any coercion or manipulation. Instead, I want to teach what I think God's word says and the implications. I want to explain the consequences, positive and negative, for obeying God, for rejecting and ignoring God, and then invite people to live into obedience. And then trust that God through his Holy Spirit will convict people as they sincerely want to follow Jesus. Because if this church is to be healthy, that financial health has to be undergirded by hilarious givers. It is not successful if we get to three years from now and we have literally more money than we would know what to do with because everyone has ratcheted up their giving 
and people are resentful, miserable. Uh, there's bitterness. There's tension in relationships because of it. That is not healthy. That is antichrist. I will never coerce or pressure you to give. I will simply put before you these principles, ideas for application, because I would honestly rather have this church financially collapse than be sustained on badgering and guilting and manipulation from the front. So the four broad principles are giving should be a priority. It should be proportional to what we have. It should be a sacrifice and it should be done cheerfully. There's a lot there. Just pause for a moment. Are there any pressing or immediate questions or comments that anyone wants to make before I move on to some application? Okay, let's talk about applying these principles and let's get into the weeds. First question. So where do I give? as it relates to the things of God. Should I give to my local church or some other parachurch ministry or missions organization whose work I value? Yes. Remember bed mass, order of operations? I do believe the Bible speaks to an order of operations as it relates to our giving. And the first place is the local church, the local committed fellowship of Christians that we are connected with. What you see in the book of Acts with the birth of the church and then stretching out more or less through all of church history is that giving is carried out to and through the local church, even to extended ministries and missions. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one is that there seems to be a priority that the vast majority of churches have upheld, which comes from 1 Corinthians 9.14 where Paul, instructing the Corinthians, says, I want you to know that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should re receive their living from the gospel. So the first priority is a strong, financially strong and healthy local church that is defined by, ideally, not always possible, but ideally, at least one pastor, uh, person in pastoral leadership who can devote themselves full-time to the leadership and organization of the church. I've said this before, the Covenant Church had a time in their history where they were like, do we want to encourage churches to do paid staff or not? Should it all be volunteer? And, just... and they arrived at a very practical solution for that. They said, what we observed in churches that try and have uh, just kind of like lay leadership spread out, reliance on gifts, awesome, like, but no paid pastoral leadership versus churches that pay at least one person to devote themselves to the ministry of preaching and teaching and uh, leadership, that those churches that have paid leadership flourish in all kinds of ways that were surprising to them. As they looked across the covenant, because there were some covenant churches, and it wasn't like these, these churches were floundering necessarily, but I think we see this principle in scripture, that the ideal is to have at least one person paid full time who's gifted and called to be a pastor. Not always possible, but that's and then we also pay and help support missionaries who are going cross-culturally to provide pastoral leadership in other contexts. And the idea behind this, again, is that there is a priority for the church to center around what's called the ministry of the word of God and prayer, preaching, teaching, and prayer and worship. In Acts 6, the very first deacons were set up 
And deacons are, depending on the Christian tradition, they're essentially leaders who help with the logistics of ministry so that people in pastoral leadership uh, can be freed to prioritize teaching and preaching and pastoral leadership. There were all kinds of issues in the early church around food distribution. They were kind of like running their own food center. It was kind of like, oh, some of the these people were getting more food than these, and how do we deal with that? How do we uh, rejig the logistics? And the, and the, the apostles were getting pulled into these um, food distribution um, dis- discussions. And they said, you know what? It actually wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And it, that's not condescension. That just means like to distribute the food. They said, brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and then we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so we're seeing this concentric circle of priority. We give to the local church so that there can be at least one person who's employed full-time and relieved from other distracting responsibilities so that they can lead and pastor and teach and preach and pray. Now, Outside of that, there is some debate in Christian circles in terms of like, okay, well, how do I divide my giving between the local church and other ministries and missions and opportunities? And some would say, we'll get to tithe in a moment. Some will say tithe to the church and then offerings above and beyond. I would just say, I think the general principle that we see in scripture is definitely the majority of your giving would go to the local church. And then a smaller portion would go to support other ministries that you're involved in. Now, obviously, you could say, Jeff, you're pretty self-interested to make that claim, <laughs> given, <laughs> given. Okay, so let's just pause your suspicion that I'm money-hungry and power-hungry, and I just want to like bend all this stuff towards the advancement of my own purposes. And let's say for a moment that actually is the principle, that we want to have a strong local church first before we extend out and support other ministries. So we have the majority of our giving going to the local church. Can you see a practical reason why that would actually be God's design? But what if someone said, I mean, totally great, uh, provides a foundation so they can go out. But what if someone said, but you know what, I don't know, like I just don't feel like the church needs my money or it's not as exciting. Like I want to give to these other ministries because awesome, the church doesn't need a foundation. God will take care of it. We'll just kind of give. What's the consequence of that? Church gets financially um, suffocated while parachurch ministries grow and grow and grow and become more and more significant. What's the consequence of that? What's that? Yep. And what will there also not be in time? Yeah, the, the other parachurch ministries. They will be gone within 10 or 25 years. They sustain themselves through committed communities of the Christian faith. So we give to this church as a way it might seem indirect, but it's pretty powerful as a way to support other parachurch ministries, even if our church doesn't give to that ministry. Because when the local church is strengthened and Christians are coming on board with the kingdom of God, that has spillover effect. But the church is meant to act like a body. There's a central nervous system. And if you say, we're not going to feed the nervous system because we're going to invest in this you know, forearm and hand, this will die out over time. 
the distributary that Rick talked about. God has designed the local church to be the uh, principal receiver of God's funds and then for those to go out with wisdom. And that's why we have leadership. And that's why we have finance reports. And that's why we have AGMs so that you can hold us accountable to say this is the right use of God's money. But it should, I believe, be prioritized to the local church and then extras go to parachurch organizations. Okay, how much should I give? If you spend enough time in a church, you heard it this morning from Rick, you'll hear phrases like tithes or tithes and offerings, and the tithe means a tenth thing. So numerically, it's like 10% of one's income. That comes from a really powerful promise given to God's people in Malachi 3, where God says, I want you to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And God says, test me in this. It's actually a counter command. God commanded in every other way you don't test him. He says that in Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the one time in scripture where it says, you can actually test me. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on your community, you won't have enough room to store it. And although the New Testament offers no direct teaching on tithing, again, Rick references in his message, Jesus does give an implicit affirmation to the practice. He warns these Pharisees. He says, woe to you Pharisees, because you're giving God a tenth of your resources, but you're neglecting justice and the love of God. And then he says, you should have practiced the latter while doing, sorry, while not leaving the former left undone. So Jesus doesn't say, you're tithing and you're turning a blind eye to starving widows in the streets. That's wrong. God doesn't care about your tithing. Help the poor widow. He says, you're good to tithe. That's good, right? You should have realized that's the training wheels of generosity. So you're supposed to look at the widow and say, what does God's generosity pull me towards in this situation? So it's a both and. Now many Christians and churches have seen the tithe as a good principle, even though in the New Testament, it's never directly instructed. These other principles of proportionality and priority and sacrifice and cheerfulness. Um, so, but a common answer most churches will ballpark with is somewhere around 10%, maybe to the local church, and then offerings maybe exceeding that, or maybe seven, you know, 10% total, you know, seven or 8% to your local church and two or 3% to another ministry. There's kind of different views there. Um, but again, remember because of principle four, giving cheerfully, even if a church or even if a pastor says, if it were up to me, this is how I want everyone in our church to be giving, because of principle four, giving should be done cheerfully and hilariously. A healthy church will never enforce the tithe. A healthy pastor will never demand it, or really any amount. They're not going to guilt you. They're not going to shame you for not doing it. And the reason is, is because giving is supposed to be a source of life. It's not supposed to be a millstone around our neck. Giving actually gets the bottleneck of ourselves out of the way so the flow of God's generosity can more easily move in our life. So pastors and churches should invite people into that vision and encourage people to test it, but not coercively demand. And again, I'm proud that our church really doesn't go in that direction at all. I, I know there were churches when I was in Ontario, there were churches who this time of year, you would submit to the church finances you, all your T4s and your charitable receipts. That was a condition of membership in the church every year. 
it's antichrist, it's unbiblical, right? Probably doesn't guarantee a lot of hilarious giving, right? Um, but that church was swimming with money. There was also kind of like pseudo-cult, I would say. Because when we're coerced or enforced, even with the right intentions, we talked about this before, right? Aiming for the right things, but using antichrist or ungodly means to secure those right things, a church with lots of money. Wouldn't that be great? Not if it comes on the back of exploiting and manipulating people. It's not. Full stop. Never. But look at all the ministry we, we could do. It could be amazing if you know, we've calculated the average household income in our church and we could do this and that. If it comes in the back of exploiting and manipulating people, nope, that doesn't glorify God at all. Now for many who are not giving anything or giving a really small amount, the thought of giving 10%, can, you can just flood. You can just be overwhelmed and be like, I can't even wrap my head around what that would look like, right? I mean, for some, it takes more faith to trust God with giving 10% of your income than with trusting God for your eternal destiny. Like, it's weird, but that really is the case. And my encouragement to you, if you're at a place where you're not giving anything, or 10% or even 5%, it just feels overwhelming, just start somewhere. Like, literally start with something somewhere. This is what I did years ago. I started with 1%. And then after three or four months when that became easy, because it will become pretty easy. And you'll see God's blessing in all kinds of ways. You go to 2% or 2.5%. You keep just kind of ratcheting up. Test me in this, God says. Okay, I'm scared, God. Uh, I feel like I'm going to lose here, but here, here we go. I, wa I want to obey you. Start at 1%. Start on an amount. Do you feel sacrificial? 20 bucks? Eh, not too bad. 50 bucks? Eh, 75? Uh, that'd be sacrificial. Okay, start there. I guarantee you God will honor that intention. God will honor that movement. God always honors progressive steps of obedience. And God will prosper you in all kinds of ways. I would include materially there as well, in terms of different opportunities and things that you won't be able to anticipate. But in all kinds of ways, God will increasingly, if you are faithful to him in this area, your life will become more full of the things that make life rich. God will prosper you. I've got tons of stories. That's a different sermon. Let's go to two challenging follow-up questions from here, and then we'll close. What if my spouse doesn't want to give? What if we're not on the same page? And this can happen with uh, believing, non-believing spouse, believing spouses on very different pages. Real short advice here. We want to avoid unnecessary marital discord. But if you're a Christian, you are going to want to live into these values and priorities. So what do you do? So the first thing I would say is you want to pray. You want to pray for yourself, pray for your marriage, pray for your spouse. And then I think you would negotiate. I think you sit down and you say, this is important to me. Right? And hopefully you have a spouse that respects you enough that if you're coming to them and saying, this is important to me, and I'm willing to make sacrifices over here. So even if there's a portion of money over here where you're like, that's untouchable, that's my money. That's maybe a separate issue. But even if that's the case, you can still say, well, this is my money. And I'm letting you know that I'm going to do less of this in order to take this and give more to the church or to missions. And that might not be as much as you'd like to give, but you should negotiate and your spouse should respect you enough to say, okay, if you're willing to make those sacrifices, then sure, 
And that might be your witness to them. You say, yeah, I, I really am. I'm giving up something that you know is important to me to do something that's even more important to me. And then hopefully God blesses you and your spouse sees that blessing over months and years. And that softens their heart. And then just keep praying. Just keep praying. Other question, and this is kind of the larger elephant in the room. Can I just not give? Like, won't God still love me? A lot of Christians won't say this out loud, but this is kind of the quiet part out loud. Can I just not give? And I'll give in other ways. Time, energy, reserve. I'm just not going to give my money, though. Because God is still going to love me. This isn't like a salvation issue where I'm going to be condemned to hell because I didn't give. I don't gain entrance to heaven because I tithe. Like God isn't at the, you know, at the entrance to heaven with a cumulative T4 and charitable receipts and saying, ah, right? So if this isn't really a salvation issue, issue, is it that big of a deal? How about I just not give my money? Won't God still love me? Yes, God will always love If you are in Christ, if you've yielded to Christ, you're now part of the family of God, your salvation, I believe, is secure unless you completely reject and abandon God intentionally and persistently. But this is kind of like asking, um, can I just not worry about trying to please or honor God in this area, like at all? In my marriage, can I just not worry about being challenged to be a better Christian husband or wife, like at all? That's just an area I just, I find it really inconvenient. Won't God still love me? In the area of how I use my body and my sexuality, can I just like not worry about honoring God in any of that? I'll honor God in other ways. But here I just, uh, I can't be bothered. It's so stressful. It's so, it puts such a cramp on my lifestyle. You, you pick an area, right? Would God still love that person? Yeah, of course. But God would not be able to bless that person in the same way, right? If we stop seeking the will of God, like intentionally, not that we're imperfectly seeking God's will, uh, you know, and making progress, but making missteps along the way. But we're actually saying in this area, I don't give a rip about trying to please or honor God. You grieve the Holy Spirit, the New Testament says, and that has consequences. It has at least two consequences. There's a blessing and prosperity which gets curtailed in your life. You become the bottleneck of God's generosity. That's what Rick talked about last week. You become the dam. You dam up God's generosity towards you. Not as love, you're in Christ, but just like if you have a, if you have two children and one child says, I don't really give a rip about pleasing or honoring you, mom and dad, I'm doing my own thing, whatever. And another child who says, I actually want to honor you and they're doing it imperfectly, but you're seeing a desire to uh, for them to bless you, you love both of them, but honestly, you're just going to provide different opportunities to one versus the other. Of course you would. And that's what God does. Certain blessings and prosperities will, prosperity will be curtailed because God can't bless disobedience. So if you're saying, in this area, I'm just going to be disobedient to God and trust that all these other places where I am being obedient over here will kind of counter it. It's like, no, that's not really actually the way the Christian life works. We don't get to set the parameters of the areas where we have to try and love and honor God and obey him. And then the other consequence that I think will happen, James talks about this, it happens a few times in the New Testament, is there will be discipline in your life. 
There will be corrective discipline, which God will introduce. That happens in different ways to different people. But there will just be consequences that come, not because God has abandoned you, but we are told in Scripture, if we persist in sin, God will discipline us because he wants better for us as his children. God will not simply let us willfully, intentionally ignore him in a certain area. So God will still love you if you don't give or if you don't seek to honor God in this area at all. You don't take any baby steps, but there will still be consequences. Do not be deceived, Paul says in Galatians 6. God can't be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. You sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. And so let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. And here's a really important word that I want to say to people who are actually sacrificially giving and tithing and have for years or maybe for decades and are tempted to maybe look at people around you who either have shared with you, maybe openly, or you suspect aren't making any of the same sacrifices, but they're showing up to the same church and taking advantage of the same programs and doing all this stuff, but they seem to have a very casual attitude in terms of giving. It's like, oh, I don't really do that. I give in different ways and blah, blah, blah. And your heart, and I've been here too, your heart can be tempted to resentment or bitterness towards them. Remember Galatians 6, a person reaps what they sow. And what that means is this. Christians who withhold giving aren't actually gaining. And Christians who give generously aren't actually losing. I guarantee it. And on a particular Sunday, that doesn't look right. On a particular Sunday, I send an e-transfer, my bank account goes down, someone else doesn't, they've gained. I've lost. You play that over a larger timeline, God will bless those who are seeking to honor and bless him. God blesses obedience. God can't bless disobedience. So if you are giving, if you have been faithful, then trust that any Christian who's like, oh, I've got to game the system. I get all the church, but I just get to like keep all my money. They're not gaining. I guarantee it. They're not prospering. I guarantee it. And the Christian, the, the couple, the family who's saying, we're giving up these things in order to pay for Rick's salary so that he can spend quality time training and investing in the lives of our young people, nudging and nurturing them towards Jesus. I don't even really see how that would ever come back and benefit me. But we're giving up these things and someone else and says, oh, what a sucker. You're giving that amount of money to the church? You are not losing, friends. You honestly aren't. You are not losing. God's word instructs us to make giving a priority, proportional, sacrificial, and cheerful. And so in our giving and in all things, let us not become weary in doing good and pursuing what is good and what is true. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. God, bring 